Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, that's me. Hi there. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball, along with Carrie Haskell from those aforementioned Zone Radio studios. Welcome into episode number 196, brought to you as always by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of talented actors join us on the podcast this week. A little bit later on, one of our favorites, I think he's been on the show, Carrie, uh, or, or daily radio show, about a half dozen times. Mm. And um, man, for a guy who's done as much as he has, uh, William Sanderson is is so humble often apologetic and you know, says, I'm, I'm just rambling on with my st- stories. No, no, no. Your stories are great. They are. And, and the way he tells them makes them even more absorbing. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, that's why the uh, audio version of his book mm. is, is so good. He's worked with everybody in the business. And so, uh, yeah, we welcomed him back uh, to talk about, the new audio version that he narrates of his book, Yes, I'm That Guy, The Rough and Tumble Life of a Character Actor. So you'll hear that in the second half of the podcast. Up first, uh, man, oh man, another talented actor and singer. Liz Vassie, been in a ton of TV shows through the years. You probably know her best from her work on CSI or maybe The Tick or maybe All My Children back when she was a teenager. But she's been in dozens of shows through the years. Very, very talented. And also shows off her chops as a singer with a, a new pandemic project mini album called Like a Girl. We had a chance to talk with Liz about music, acting, and more. Here's Liz Vassie on Downtown. Hello, Liz. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for calling. Sure. Absolutely. Let's see, Liz, where to begin. Let's start with this uh, music project, Like a Girl, a wonderful collection of songs. This was a, a pandemic project for you? It was. I, it, it, well, you know, I kind of blame Hamilton because I'd seen it a couple times and uh, in real life in New York. I saw it in Los Angeles, and then I saw it on TV. And um, I started off doing musical theater when I was a kid. I mean, I did like 50 musicals from the ages of 10 to 16 at dinner theaters all over Florida. <laughs> I was in deep. And I, I watched Hamilton on TV during the pandemic, and it just hit me how much I missed singing. And so I just decided um, I'm terrible in the kitchen. Sourdough bread was really not an option for me. So I thought, well, I might as well make a record. So I went and did this with uh, with some friends and a vocal coach and some people she introduced me to that said that they would be glad to um, do the engineering and, and work on it with me. So it was really a labor of love, and I'm, I'm glad I did it. Well, it sounds great. Uh, some wonderful songs. Did you pick the songs? I did. I picked the songs mostly because I think there are a lot of ballads out there in particular that I love that are normally sung by men. So I wanted to put sort of a, a gender-bending twist on it. But also each song means something specifically to me. Like I covered an Elvis song and my late mom loved that song, Can't Help Falling in Love With You. And so that was for my mom. Uh, my sister was a Bee Gees fanatic. And so she'd always said nobody ever covered the song words. So I thought, all right, I'll do that for my sister. 
Uh, one song was for my husband. So each one basically was very personal to me because of somebody in my life. Well, they're all great. My, my two favorites are, uh, and again, uh, songs written by men, Dylan's Make You Feel My Love and the Peter Gabriel song, Book of Love. They're both great, great covers. Thank you. Book of Love was for the husband. Um, and uh, Make You Feel My Love was for me. And then the other one that was for me, I'm a Radiohead fan. I, Radiohead's my favorite band. And so I thought everybody covers Creep, and nobody's doing No Alarms, No Surprises, at least not that I'd heard. So I thought I, I can't cover Creep because it's been done so many times and done so well. So I thought I'm going to go in with a different tact. I'm going to pick a different song. Um, so, yeah, the Radiohead was the one that was mostly mostly for me. Well, finally, something positive from the pandemic, because it's a wonderful collection. I love it, and uh, people can find it out there on many different audio platforms. But check out Like a Girl. You'll be glad you did. All right, I'm, I have to go backtrack a little bit. Musical theater, I, my day job, I teach high school, and I'm a high school theater director. And I, I've directed, I don't know, 50, 60 musicals through the years. What was your favorite to perform in? Oh, see, I knew I liked you. What an incredible <laughs> job. But thank you. Thank you for doing that. Um, and you're making such a big difference in so many kids' lives, I can tell you from personal experience. Um, my my favorite one, well, the one that I started with was Oliver, and I played Oliver in Oliver. And um, I was nine years old, and I had uh, I'd been in the hospital for a while when I was very young. And when I went in to the hospital, I went in very gregarious and I came out pretty shell-shocked. And um, for some reason, I, I'd seen my sister in a musical and I, I said, I want to try that. And my mom thought, oh, no, I can't drive her to the audition and watch her just freeze. I can't watch it, you know, because I, I didn't seem to be the type. And so my sister took me to the audition and they cast me as Oliver in Oliver. And I just remember at nine, uh, ironically, feeling more like myself on stage singing than I did uh, in normal life. Like I just, I felt very comfortable. So that started my entire acting career was doing that show. So Oliver will always hold a special place in my heart. Um, God, I was Ado Annie in Oklahoma. Oh. I was, uh, I did South Pacific. I did Finian's Rainbow. I, I mean, I hit pretty much every dinner theater in, in Florida. I was there. <laughs> um, it was, it was a great, it was a great way to grow up. It's, uh, it especially been, Going from theater into television, I was very clear about the fact that uh, I think these creative endeavors should be a team sport. You know, like I, I came from theater where uh, everybody is equal and everybody does their part and you all do it together. And I, I think you can always tell the TV actors who came from theater, I think their attitude's a little different. Well, and so I don't have to, to sell you on, on the notion of how important it is to have arts education in the schools, whether people are going to build a career in the arts or not. All of the skills and the confidence that you gain from doing that will help you out in whatever you do. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, I've, I've since segued from acting into writing, but I have pitch meetings all the time with the heads of networks and being on stage for so many years of my life, I'm really comfortable in all of these meetings. And, and so it helps with my public speaking and it helps, uh, it, it, like I said, it helps with teamwork and it, it's helped in countless ways. Um, yeah, I, I can't, uh, I can't say that enough. I mean, I, I, I really think what you're doing is wonderful. We're talking with Liz Vassie here on Downtown. Well, speaking of writing, so you, you've written a pilot, you were telling me, and are you still waiting for some news on that? 
Well, yes and no. So I wrote a pilot and is starring Marin Dungey, uh, who's been, if you look her up, in absolutely everything. And uh, it's being produced by Mayim Bialik's company. And it is with Warner Brothers. And so we initially sold it to NBC. And it uh, is not moving forward at NBC. Um, and there are there are a lot of reasons why things like this happen. And it's such an interesting thing to have to explain to people because you run through such this just a just a gauntlet of, of challenges to even get that far with a script. You know, you have to pitch it to producers. They have to like it. We, then you have to pitch it to a studio. They have to like it. Then a network has to buy it. Then you have to write the script. But we got down to the last group of, of shows in contention and quite honestly, there weren't enough slots. And so uh, I'm, I'm meeting with Warner Brothers again and we're sort of revamping it and going to some other interested parties and trying to see if we can set up a home at, at another place that is uh, sniffing around so, um, and I hope so, because it's based on a very personal story. So I hope it moves forward. Well, we, we wish you luck with that. I want to talk about the, some of the, the many highlights of your career. You started pretty young as a professional. How old were you when you got the role of Emily on All My Children? I was 16. And, oh. uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and I know, it was a sweetest. Uh, the singing helped because I had to sing on the soap. And so I remember I flew up for my initial audition uh, from Tampa, Florida to Manhattan, which I was in love with New York when I first saw it when I was 12, I think. I just fell in love with that city. So it was already a dream to be flying there to audition. I had a manager there. And so I, I went to the first audition and they called me back and then they called me back and I had a screen test and I had to sing for everybody and I had to do uh, a scene with Maurice Bernard, who's now in General Hospital. And, uh, yeah, at the age of 16, I moved with my mother and my grandmother, and we moved to a one-bedroom apartment in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan. <laughs> and we, uh, we basically, you know, just I call this the estrogen brigade. It was, uh, it was the three of us against the world, and it was a, a pretty magical time, actually. So was being on the soap. It was, it was a great experience. Well, and I would think that theater background must have helped a lot because uh, quite often you you don't get a whole lot of time to learn lines. It's often, uh, oh, here's what we're doing. Here's today. Let's We're doing it in 15 minutes. Good luck. Yeah, you know, but the interesting thing, too, is that I since I was 16 years old and I had no basis of comparison, I mean, basically I'd, I'd done a lot on stage, but I'd never really done TV before. I mean, I'd done maybe a guest spot, a commercial, but very small things. So I got there and I thought, oh, I guess this is how television works. You just you do 30 pages and then that's what you do. And so I think, you know, ignorance is bliss sometimes. I just had no idea that that was hard. And so my brain thought, well, I guess I guess this is my job and I will do it. And then I went from doing that to doing primetime. And then you do maybe six, seven pages a day that aren't even all you. So you end up doing two pages a day. And I thought, well, this is really easy. And then I did some movies and I shot half a page a day. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> wow, this is sort of uh, inversely proportional to, <laughs> to the level of um, to the level of, of how it's perceived. You know, movies are considered so fancy and you shoot them so slowly by comparison. It was uh, interesting. You have done so many television shows through the years, and I, I want to talk about, well, my favorites among them, because some of them we don't get to talk about much, but but just, I don't know, two or three months ago, we had Yardley Smith on the show, and we got a chance to talk about a program we loved, Herman's Head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was I? 
I was playing a lesbian who wanted to be impregnated by Herman, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I was like 22 years old, too. So it really a very funny job, you know, of course, because every 22-year-old is desperate to have a child. Um, But, uh, yeah, I had a a great time. I thought that the concept for that show was fantastic, and uh, and the cast was was incredibly nice and welcoming, Yardley especially. I liked her so much. And you end up uh, doing four episodes, one of the great ensembles in in TV history of uh, ER. Well, that was funny because I had shot the pilot for Pigsty the night before I went to go work on ER. And uh, Pigsty ended up going on UPN, and it was originally shot for, for NBC. So I, I shot the pilot till late at night, and I had this job on this show called ER. So I went the next morning. I'd had maybe four hours sleep, and I shot mm, maybe for three hours. And I thought, oh, this guy I'm working with is so nice. He's, he's really kind, and what a good actor. And I'd left, and as I was driving home, I had this epiphany, and I thought, oh, my God, that was Goose from Top Gun. I had no idea who I was working with. I was exhausted. I hadn't seen Top Gun in a very long time. So then I drove home, and they, they ended up cutting the, the – they cut the pilot together. They edited it, and they called, and they said, we'd like you to come back and do a few more. So I went and did, I think, three more episodes. And then at the time, Pigsty went on UPN, and contractually I couldn't do more than three or four guest spots on a single other show. So I had to leave VR against my will. And of course I felt lucky for the other show, but I also thought this is so stupid. ER is blowing up into one of the biggest hits. Having me on it will only help. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, had to, I had to leave. But the other interesting thing was we, we were basically shooting right across the street on the Warner Brothers lot um, from Friends, which was in its first year as well. So I just remember uh, all of these people who are now absolutely huge stars, just sitting out there talking, smoking cigarettes, playing basketball. Um, it was uh, now you look back and you just go, what a, <laughs> what a strange time when David Schwimmer is contemplating whether or not he can afford to buy a house because the show might not go for very long. So <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty fun time. Well, you got the, the role in Pigsty. Well, is there a sense of security there when you know you've got, well, you've got a season anyway? Yeah, there was I, actually that job in particular. I remember walking up and down the hallway where my dressing room was and thinking, "Don't ever take this for granted," um, because I just have been I've been hyper aware since I was a child, since I started so young, just the ephemeral nature of this business. So at no point did I ever suffer from the delusion that it would last forever, or that, uh, or frankly, that it, it's always a meritocracy. You know, I always felt that there was a great deal of. Uh, luck i always felt fortunate to be where i was and um that show i just remember in particular trying to remember every moment because i thought you're a series regular and that doesn't happen all the time um so yeah i felt uh, a sense of security that i hadn't i mean i i felt it a bit on the soap but uh, but pigstar really helped <laughs> well really helped. going through your bio and all of a sudden i came upon a show that i had i had forgotten about and when i saw it i i flashed back and remembered how much i loved it and how I thought it was going to be a big hit. Uh, I, Maximum Bob uh, with Bo Bridges. Man, I, that was a terrific show. It deserved a better fate. Thank you. It was hands down my very favorite acting job. Uh, and I think pretty much to a person that worked on that show, we had a party uh, right before the pandemic, actually. We had a uh, get-together with everybody, like all the writers and all the cast. I think every single person who worked on that show says the same thing. It was the most wonderful experience 
all of us would have done it for five years. All of us consider it a high point. I mean, there was something just just the the way the cast gelled. The writing was Alex Gonza, who went on to do Homeland. I mean, he he wrote the pilot, which was fantastic. It was a string of wonderful writers. The, 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 just everybody involved. The directors were incredible. Um, yeah, if I had to pick one that broke my heart, it was it was that. And I, like I said, I think everybody else involved would say the same thing. So thank you for for loving it. We did too. Uh, you have been in the, both versions, the live action and the animated versions of The Tick. I have to assume that uh, a couple of things. I, I know you were a big superhero kid, a lover of superheroes, uh, but also, well, that generates a whole new fan base when you when you play somebody like Captain Liberty. Well, I got an action figure, and I have to say, <laughs> somebody who is a kid like me, I mean, I own every single Star Wars toy that was ever created. It was very into superheroes. I, I like all of that was just that was my childhood in a nutshell. So when I was handed my own action figure, it might as well have been an Oscar. I was absolutely <laughs> so. Um, so that's first and foremost, that just meant the world. And then I went to uh, I went to a, a con to a convention. And I saw somebody dressed as Captain Liberty. And that also was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe somebody with the torch in the crown. So um, all of that was just a, a childhood dream realized. And, um, yeah, it was it was an incredible time. It was also really fun because, you know, we'd get in uh, political discussions, the four of us, we worked 12, 14 hours a day. We'd get in political discussions, and they would get kind of heated sometimes. And then we'd look around, and we're all dressed as superheroes. And it, it's just intrinsically impossible to get in a, in a serious argument while you're wearing a cape. Like, you can't do it. It's just it's too laughable. And so there was something great about that set because it could never get too antsy or too angsty because we're, you know, we're, we're, we look like idiots. So, <laughs> so it, was, uh, it was a fun place to be. And you had worked with Patrick Warburton before that, right? Yeah, I worked with Patrick on an episode of Murphy Brown um, a million years ago. So I I think, now he could correct me on this, but I think that's the first time we met. But we also, unless Pig no, unless, uh, excuse me, unless Grapevine came first. Because we also did a show called Grapevine, but we were in different episodes. But it was shot in Miami, and we crossed paths. So basically it had been two shows before the take. And just also, I think, some social engagements and um, we sort of knew each other through other people, but we were definitely buddies by the time that show started. And, right. and I had also just done Maximum Bob, so I knew Barry Sonnenfeld, um, who who directed both the pilot for Maximum Bob and the pick pilot. So uh, it, was, it was pretty. Oh, and I knew Nestor, too, because he'd done a guest spot on Brotherly Love. So by the time we shot the pilot for the pick, it was just felt like family. So I, I posted on social media the other day that, that you were going to be on the show this week. And, one, well, one of my one of my former theater kids was flipping out because she was an absolutely huge CSI fan and uh, she wanted to hear Wendy Sims. Oh, that's really nice. That's good. The, the coolest thing about that job, I get emails even now. I get uh, texts and, and just and tweets from uh, girls going into science and talking about wanting to study DNA because of Wendy. And I can't imagine anything that's more gratifying than that. So, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a super cool job because they let me do a ride along with the CSIs in Vegas. So I got to go to actual crime scenes. I got to take fingerprints. I got to watch three autopsies, um, which was just 
incredible. Like, I want to go back and do it again for no reason other than the fact that I just, I, I was so bitten by that entire profession. I thought, wow, if I ever quit the business, it's because I've, I've quit to become a CSI. Now, you've also worked uh, two occasions, I think, uh, with, well, my man crush. I'm not ashamed to say it. My wife knows about it, Nathan <laughs> Fillion. <laughs> yeah, well, the first time, we didn't even really meet because I just went to go do the Dr. Horrible. The, I, you know, I was in it for a nanosecond that I just went with a writer from CSI who basically lied to me. So he comes to work on CSI. It's the middle of the writer's strike, so we're actually marching outside Universal. And he said, uh, he said, you know, there's some people involved in this, and they, they really want you to come and be a part of it. And I thought, oh, how fantastic. So I went, and he, nobody knew me. He just wanted me to keep him company. So I basically <laughs> sat there in the evil league of evil. I didn't see anybody else. So Nathan and I didn't really meet then, but we met on uh, Castle. And when I showed up, he had watched or told me he watched, but I'm going to believe him, um, all the episodes of The Tick. And so he was, he was, incre I mean, you've heard it before, I'm sure, from everybody who's worked with him. He's incredibly kind. But uh, he also just, he goes, he goes well beyond what number one in a call sheet has to be and is just um, so gracious. And so, like, he should teach a class. In, in how to be a good number one on the call sheet. He and Scott Bakula were two people, and Annie Potts, okay, there's three that I've worked with <laughs> that left uh, such impressions on me, how you behave on set. Um, and they all were impeccable. And you've been doing, uh, for IMDb TV uh, for a few years now, a very cool series. Tell us a little bit about Riley Para, Better Angels. Uh, that came about because I did a pilot in 2004 called Nikki and Nora, and uh, it was about, it always sounds tawdry when I say it, and it was actually a great pilot, but it's about two cops, uh, two female cops in New Orleans who are also a couple, um, which, you know, I know the first thought that a lot of people have is just sort of Charlie's Angels and like, freeze. No, it was <laughs> two badass cops who happened to be a couple in New Orleans, and it was a little ahead of its time, um, but I noticed that uh, online, there, there's a severely, or it's sort of changing, but at the time, a severely underserved community. Um, I noticed a lot of women were watching the pilot got leaked, and they were watching it because they were so pleased to see two lesbian leads. And I thought, uh, wow, like if you're having to search out a pilot and you're having to work that hard to see yourselves represented, that's a problem. And so then I was approached to do it as a web series, and I did, and the same group of people put together Riley Para. Um, and, uh, it is also, uh, very LGBTQ positive and it was, uh, about, I, I played an ME, uh, who was coupled up with a cop, Riley, and, uh, it had a supernatural sort of Buffy element to it. And mm. it was fun. And I also ended up getting, I got an Emmy nomination off of that, which was totally a surprise and, um, super fun to get to put on the fancy dress and, and I lost, <laughs> but <laughs> it was really fun to experience. And did I see this, uh, I think, somewhere on Twitter, that you and your husband ran a marathon? Well, I kind of forced him into doing it. I've been running for years. Uh, I, I've been running for a very long time, and then my mother, unfortunately, passed away in 2012, and running was partially what kept me going. Um, it, it really helped through the, the grief process, so I started to really fall in love with it. So then I, I made a documentary. I directed it and produced it uh, called The Human Race, a couple years ago, uh, where I followed runners over the age of 50 because I wanted to know how long I could do it because I thought I want to run until the very end if I can. 
And I started to find 70 and 80 and 90 year olds running marathons. And I thought, well, this is amazing. What a great message to put out there, you know? And so while I was following them, uh, I covered uh, Catherine Switzer doing the New York Marathon. She did the New York City Marathon at the age of 70. And my husband is a cameraman, so he was helping me make this. And they invited us to run it the next year. And he kept thinking that we wouldn't have to or that something would come up, but nothing did. So he ran it with me. We ran the whole thing together. He did a fantastic job. Uh, he he uh, now, I wouldn't say he loves running, but he likes it. <laughs> and uh, and then I went on, I did the virtual Boston um, after that for Catherine Switzer's charity. And uh, yeah, I'm hooked. I mean, it's, to me, it's like my coffee. I have to wake up, roll out of bed and go for a run. Liz Vassia, the album is called Like a Girl. Keep watching and we'll keep our fingers crossed that this pilot finds a home down the road. But Liz, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been a blast. I hope we can do it again sometime. I would love that. Thank you so much. That's Liz Vassie here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a break for a quick word from Cross Insurance and come back with actor William Sanderson next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. There's a little bit of Liz Vassie doing Peter Gabriel's Book of Love. Back here on Downtown, the podcast, and up next, a talented actor who has lived the life of a character actor. You know him for his work as Larry on Newhart, as E.B. Farnham in Deadwood, a great roles in TV series like Lonesome Dove, films like Coal Miner's Daughter, Blade Runner, and many, many more through the years. He's one of our favorites to talk to. His book, Yes, I'm That Guy, The Rough and Tumble Life of a Character Actor, out on audiobook now. And so that gave us all the reason we needed to welcome back actor William Sanderson. Bill, good afternoon. Good afternoon, and uh, uh, happy Valentine's Day. Well, thank you. The same to you and Sharon, who are uh, what coming up on 29 years of marriage. Is that right? Yes, and together a little longer. Thank you. Uh, but uh, and you've got your own lengthy marriage, right? Yeah, we're hanging in there. We're doing not as long as you guys, but we're doing pretty well. Thank you. I'll say. I, I look at the pic from the photos on Instagram with your son. What a handsome young man. I sound like I'm trying to get a job from you. Yeah. But he, he is, and, and the dog. Was his name Ginger? Was there? What was her name? <laughs> it is Ginger. Yeah, you, you well, man, you're right she, on top of things here. Well, she's lying in the sun, and my dog does that. And even though it's cold outside, they're under cover, and the sun is hitting them. So forgive me. From uh, I'm a little nervous. I tried to call, and I had the I think I had the wrong number. So well, that's uh, on me, Bill. I gave you the wrong number. I typed it in wrong. Well, uh, anyway, shame on you. 
No. <laughs> <laughs> no well, we are we are so excited that uh, your book is an audio book. Was this in the plans all along? Well, it ha- I've wanted to do it for some time, but uh, what happened? What made it happen was an agent, my voice agent, said you've got to do an uh, audio book. But I didn't want to fly to California. There are other people that would have done it and have expressed the interest, but you have to rent a hotel room. and uh, what, But he just made everything happen. And when I found out who he's working with, some of the biggies from Valley, Burton Alley to, uh, well, I'm not supposed to mention his name, James Patterson. I said, well, I'm in good hands. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's because of Zach Kaplan that it happened and Sharon's uh, technical skills, but it, it, the miracle was it's uh, less than two miles from my house. They found a production house, and that young rappers opened this production house, and so that made it a lot easier on me. At the end of each day, I was fairly tired, but it wasn't like uh, being three thousand miles in a strange place. It was it was great. Well, it's wonderful. I, I enjoyed listening to it and hearing the stories again. Now, I, I want to bring up, because we've, we've talked with you about the book a couple times, but it is filled with so many wonderful stories. And I don't know if we've ever asked you about this uh, as a young guy growing up in Memphis about your uh, unique ability to get into sporting events without a ticket. Yeah, and, and that's some of the things I'm not that proud of, uh, uh Proud of the book, but not proud of it. I was saving money, usually. But it's funny, if you walk through the place brazenly like you belong, it's amazing what you can get away with. Uh, but I've used everything in, uh, that I can imagine. With, to get in the stadium to see a football game, I'd climb the fence in the back and drop down to the ground. <laughs> Never hurt myself. And I think in the book I talk about sneaking in the band, a truck full of band instruments. But I, uh, it's been a long time since I didn't pay. I'll put it that way. <laughs> well, in, in New York City, and we talked about this a little bit, but uh, when you got to New York City, you're working as a bartender, uh, deciding you want to do acting, and you got very good, you mentioned in the book, about playing what you call street bums. Yeah, I, I well, I was fascinated. I was never as good as I thought I was, but playing a tramp was, uh, in a classic Broadway play they had done on Broadway. We did it in a uh, showcase, but it, it sold out all the time. I played a, a guy who was a, a tramp, had true insight into what was going on in the world. He was so drunk, and he had but. Let's say he was a drunk head, true inside it. Was it a touch insane? <laughs> Listen, let me, while we stop, if, if I can't think of the word, will you fill it in for me? I'll, I'll do the best I can. Sure, it won't be as good as yours. Well, that happens, So It's the common words fly out in my mind. But so I thought you can say a good bit through a tramp. And so it, it ended up, I played two or three uh, characters in different plays, but. I did go over the edge, not living on the edge. I dressed like a bum, and I uh, 
panhandled a little bit. The director told me, go out there on the street and panhandle and see what you learn and feel. I had a guy draw a knife on me one time, and that stopped me from panhandling. But uh, I don't know. I used to go in my speech building. Believe it or not, I had speech class. And uh, this wonderful teacher said, well, if you're going to wear the costume, you can't come in here because you're scaring people. (laughs) (laughs) I I lived the part, and that's part of the miracle to get through it. And and I used a lot of it on the New Heart Show. Uh, And, you know, I'm thankful for the plays I did do in New York. I often played the town crazy. Surprise. Well, one of the biggest breaks in your early career was the opportunity to be in a a terrific film, Coal Miner's Daughter. What was the experience like working with Sissy Spacek? Oh, what a jewel. She is uh, so gracious, and I would watch people compliment her, and she'd just say thank you. And uh, it was hard when that that film did well, and I was beginning to get a few compliments. And so uh, I would, I just, thought the world of her. She took me up into her suite and played the music before we started filming, and I thought it was Loretta Lynn. She said, no, that's me. Mm. <laughs> and uh, she was just terrific, you know. Uh, what I regret is I don't know if I ever got that word to her, but I think I put it in the book if she ever reads it. Absolutely. Now, the acting fraternity is pretty pretty solid, pretty supportive as a rule, but that's not always the case. And uh, there's a great story in the book about an actor. And I won't I won't mention him by name, but he became famous uh, for doing a commercial and then at a TV show and a movie. And he, he suggested to you at one point that uh, perhaps your range was a little bit limited. But in the long run, uh, though, it's not a competition. I'd say you've won that battle, Bill. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm so glad that I uh, I said if somebody reads the book, I hope they enjoy the behind the scenes stories that uh, about the great stars, directors, and writers I worked with. I said I learned a lot from all of them. So uh, that's that's. Uh, I don't know if that follows from what you're saying, but uh, oh, I still have nightmares occasionally of experiences with people and but the great majority of people are good and will help you and want to brian cox is one i'll drop his name he's on that show right now on hbo but uh, uh they, they want you to do well and they help you but some of them will maybe uh be more of a rival than a friend mm. Well, one of the people who certainly helped you was a uh, director Ridley Scott when you were you were playing uh, Sebastian in Blade Runner, and I love the direction that he gave you. It was so simple, but you said it made all the difference when he told you that your character was a completely innocent man. Yeah, uh, and I just took him at his word. He whispered it to me, and I quit worrying about uh, anything but trying to give him what he asked for. And uh, I guess the, the intellectuals, I, 
if he's working with the genetic system and experimenting, he might say he's not. He wasn't innocent, but and uh, oh yeah, Ridley really was a great. And then he's kept working and making many movies, and it was an honor to work with him. Now he something that I didn't know and didn't uh, absorb till really the end of the film. This other star, Rutger Hauer, went to him and said. I'd like to cut that scene with William Sanderson where I kill him because I've already killed enough people. And uh, that kind of bothered me, uh, you know, but, uh, because I die pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I may be right now, but uh, it's, you always have the stars. Uh, Harrison Ford was a great star to work with, and so was Rutger Hauer. I uh, respected his acting. Bless his heart, he passed away a few months ago. But uh, I'm a, a journeyman, and often the supporting actor, and got to be careful. Yes, sir, I'll, uh, whatever you say. <laughs> but And then try to, if you have your moment, try to have, you know. Come up with something. I don't know if anyway. we've talked about uh, this film before because I, I'm I'm a big fan of it. As a, I'm a history teacher, my, my full time job, and so I absolutely loved uh, both Gettysburg and then Gods and Generals. Uh, Jeff Daniels has been on our show uh, a number oh. of times. That was really a wonderful movie. Which one? I'm sorry. Uh, Gods and Generals. Oh yeah, and Jeff is a wonderful actor, and I don't is he still on Broadway right now? Uh, I think he just got done a month or so ago. Oh, and you taught you taught civics, right? Civics and history, yes, sir. Come on, guys. Well, uh, I was lucky to be on that Gods and Generals, and if they had done Last Full Measure, A.T. Hill had a big part, but of course they didn't do it. And uh, but thanks for noticing it and. Uh, uh, you ask good questions. You've done acting yourself and directing, and uh, you name it. I was reading about you, and that's—I don't know when you sleep, but uh, congratulations to you. Well, I appreciate that. We're talking to the wonderful William Sanderson here on Downtown. Uh, you made such an impact as Lippy Jones in Lonesome Dove. Did, did you have any idea at the time what a what a big success that would be? That was a cultural phenomenon when that debuted. It did. Every actor in town and the East Coast wanted to be in it, so I was glad to get on it. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall. And uh, among other wonderful actors, and uh, of course, to refresh anybody's memory, I played uh, uh, piano playing uh, guy in a small town in Lonesome in Lonesome Dove. But he was the only one that the town whore wouldn't sleep with. <laughs> that was not a problem. <laughs> anyway, it was fun, and uh, the book was so great. Pulitzer, how do you pronounce it? Pulitzer Prize, Larry McMurtry. And I'd worked with screenwriter a few times. And uh, if I can digress a little bit, it, uh, the screenwriter sort of liked me, and luckily, but 
he confided in me, I can't get my money. I can't get my money. And I'm thinking, look, these people, it, I've had a number of them, big directors, that they're owed money. So, so just surviving Hollywood and ending up happy and gainfully retired or whatever is a good thing. <laughs> this was Bill Whitler who confided in me. Uh, I, I was shocked, so I thought, I'd pay the screenwriter. He won an Emmy, I think. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Thanks. I, I give you these non-sequiturs. Uh, thanks for listening. Bill, uh, this is uh, Rich's producer, Kerry. Uh, you you had a lot of a lot of uh, played a lot of frontier characters that really seemed to connect with the audiences. It, is there something about that type of character that you know out on the the wild frontier, the western, that appealed to you? Or oh yeah, growing up, I, I you know fantasized about. Uh, Lee Marvin, and I got to do a movie with him later in Charles Brock. But yeah, and uh, The Magnificent Seven, none of those guys were stars, but they all became stars. Uh, I would have liked to have gotten The Magnificent Seven. But I, yeah, being out, and I was doing some faking when riding those horses, and uh, especially in the rain or at night or on a hill, but somehow got through it, and uh, I, I don't know how to answer your question except that were they the great unwashed? Tom Selleck put me in a couple of movies, and uh, they weren't necessarily redeeming characters. Well, one was, and I don't know. Maybe I give that off. Uh, uh, sidekick, unwashed, I don't know. But they're fun, and I just... Uh, Loved the uh, actors that I met, and uh, and uh, I liked the Wranglers a lot. And I gave a party for them on Lonesome Dove. And the producer, what a piece of work he was! He he said, "That's rude to give the Wranglers a party." I guess I was supposed to give the whole cast a party. Chuck <laughs> Norris would give the extras a party. Then he'd give uh, the principals or Burt Reynolds would give you cowboy boots from uh, jackets, but and for Lonesome Dove, I was getting scale. Was, uh, but I was on a hit TV series and making root beer commercials as a corporate spokesman. And on my day off, I'd charter a plane to San Antonio and do a voiceover, so I didn't care about yeah. the money. <laughs> Well, I, th I think in your answer, you it may have been, you may have hit right on it, that, that you found those characters fun. It was a way to sort of live out, you know, a, a oh, lot of yeah. kids' dreams of being being a cowboy. Oh, yeah. That was, I guess, what took me away from law. You know, I just read an article that said he dropped out of law school. Same article said I graduated from SMU. No, I went to SMU, ran out of money. And I went to law school at Memphis State, but I didn't want them to put, I did graduate. People will write some bad things sometimes, but I never took the bar exam. Uh, mm. And how I got into that, I don't know. But the fun, that was what, that's what pulled me into acting. Pretending you to got be something I'm not, as Lee Marvin said. 
you got a chance to play another great Western character in, in Deadwood, and, and you write in the book that uh, uh, you believe that you and David Milch are kindred spirits. Can you explain that? Ooh, he's got a book coming out. You know, he has Alzheimer's. Everybody knows it, and he's got a memoir that comes out in September, September, I think, uh, where he struggles with it. Uh, I, he, he called me the imp of the perverse. I had to look it up, uh, uh, but a person that does the wrong thing just because it's wrong. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a short story, and I, I'd say to myself, no, David Milch is the imp of the perverse. <laughs> would, they, would his family mind that uh, everybody knows he gambled away $100 million, lost his houses and his health? And that's my word, peripatia, and I'm scared of it to this day, reversal of fortune. But mm. thank you let me babble. David, not no. babbling at all, my friend. Uh, we we could listen to you tell stories all day. And I and I say I, I've read your book twice, and then oh. listening to you tell the stories uh, in the audio book just makes it even better. Oh, you're so kind, and I um, uh, I owe you. What can I say? Uh, and uh, uh, usually we make that joke in Hollywood and say, who dropped out? <laughs> Why did I be on your show? But uh, you refreshed my memory last time, maybe a half dozen times, huh? I think so. Yeah, but you're always high on our list. We absolutely love talking with you and are so grateful anytime uh, you come on with us. So, uh, Bill, we, we appreciate you stopping by today. We wish you much success with the audio version of Yes, I'm That Guy, The Rough and Tumble Life of a character actor. We hope you'll come back again and, and hope that uh, you and, and Sharon have a happy Valentine's Day and uh, continue to do well. Uh, back at you, and uh, same to you. Thank you for everything. Can I real quickly tell that, that show I did, True Blood, uh, Vampire Porn, perhaps they've got a podcast that started today, and they're two wonderful actresses running it, Truest Blood, and they hope to do another series, but it'll be a while before they get that off the ground. HBO. Thank you, Bill Rich. Oh, that sounds great. Bill, thank you as always, my friend. We appreciate it. Hope to talk with you again down the road. Okay, okay. I uh, hope your team won last night. Take care. <laughs> Actor William Sanderson with us on Downtown, the podcast. Always a treat to talk with Bill, hear his stories. Our thanks to him. Thanks to Liz Vassie as well. And thanks to you for joining us. We'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.